Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. At set break, I try to collect my face up off the floor. At set break, if it's an indoor show, I always make a point to do a lap around the concourse because that's where I see people. At set break, I stay in the same exact spot the entire time. At least I try to. I've learned over the years that I don't love having to run around and stand in lines. And when I come in before the show and take my seat, I will just stay there the entire time and watch everybody come and go at set break. Let's see, set break. Typically, I'm grabbing a bottle of water, maybe a Mountain Dew, hot pretzel, salted and definitely going to the merch table to buy some gear for the kids and myself, and usually trying to find some people to say hi to. At set break, I check in with my friends, my neighbors, I rest my feet, and I hydrate. At set break, I stand up, look around aghast at whatever just went down, rub my eyes a little bit, shake my friend's hands, put my arms up in celebration, and sit down, to hold my space and allow all the pre-show anxiety to wash over me again in anticipation of what is to come in the second set. For we all know the second set is when anything is possible. So I have a really specific set break routine. Right when I hear the last notes of the closing song, I sprint, use the bathroom, grab a beer before the lines get long, and then I go back to my seat and spend the rest of the set break chilling, talking with my friends, and getting ready for the second set. At set break, for me, it's time to really get grounded and connect with my friends. So I'm usually in some sort of cuddle puddle of sorts and having an awesome in-depth conversation with whomever is around me. 
My first fish show was the Worcester Centrum. It was New Year's Eve, so they had the stage set of an aquarium and the band for the New Year's gag swam down from the ceiling in wetsuits uh, in this elaborate staged you know, production. But of course, I didn't realize that. I thought that maybe every fish show was like that because, well, that was my whole experience. Lost my friends in the 100 section, made my way down to the floor, fifth or sixth row, and it's set break. I mean, I knew set breaks were weird from the Grateful Dead, but that set break was weird. The lights went up, and I was convinced that this underwater theme was an element of all fish shows, and that somehow or other, they had an effect that made the entire band and audience and arena seem like it was underwater. So when people were talking to each other and chattering at set break, rather than the that you hear, I was hearing So when anybody asked me any questions, I just cut to the chase. I was just like, oh yeah? Yeah, set breaks are weird. Set breaks are weird. That was Undermine writer Benji Eisen sharing the story of his first very unusual set break, preceded by the rest of the Undermine staff all chiming in with their set break routines. By the time you experience a set break, ideally you just return from a most remarkable journey, during which time you fell into a portal and were transported to another plane of existence entirely. Maybe not Gamehenge, although it can be fun to say that, but a transcendent space place, far beyond the arena or the amphitheater. A place where it's just you, the music, and the universe. If you're doing it a certain way when the band takes the stage, all other things kind of just fall by the wayside. You look around during a show and your friends have their eyes closed too. Or maybe they're fixated on the incredible light show. Maybe you play a bad air guitar. Maybe the person next to you dances as if they're possessed by various spirit animals. And who's to say? Maybe they are. During a fish show, when the music plays, nothing else matters. That's why we're there. But when the lights come up, and not everything is as it seemed just a minute ago, it can be a rude awakening. You're going to need a minute to collect yourself. Maybe more to pick your jaw up off the floor, or learn how to construct complete sentences again. This might be where you redundantly state, that was great, to your friends. Like saying it's beautiful out on a sunny day. But then what? Well, you have about 30 minutes to go to the bathroom or get another drink, but you're going to be competing with thousands of others who just got that exact same notion at the exact same time. So unless you really have to go, maybe stay in your seat and meet your neighbors. Hi, neighbors. My name is Tom Marshall and I'm Fish's lyricist. I usually wander backstage between sets to hang out with friends, but for this one, I'm going to take the empty seat next to you. Don't worry, I'll get up when they get back. It's season two, episode seven of Undermine, which means it's set break. Previously on this season of Undermine, we've explored how we heard of this band Fish to begin with. Then we went on the road, got to the venue, cruised around lot, went in early, took up our positions, and raged the first set. 
Now it's set break, and as we just established, set breaks are weird. They can be a needed rest, a welcome refresh, or just an awkward period of limbo in between the action. Sometimes a set break can feel like it has been going on way Way too too long. long. Or it can go by in the blink of an eye, and the house lights go down and the stage lights go up, and off we go again. Much of your set break experience depends on your frame of mind and on who is around you at the show. Let's meet some of those people. But first, I'm going to see if the merch booth has any of those event patches left and get back to my spot before the second set begins. Want anything? Text it to me. I gotta run. Set breaks have an unromantic history, as they were designed by promoters to further monetize the concert experience, converting a scheduled bathroom break into a commerce city. It's the time when everyone buys food, drink, and merchandise. You skip to the loo and purchase something on your way back, because you have time and because there's nothing else going on. Shows that have an opening act don't need this break, because there's already a necessary gap between bands. But for marathon players like Fish, set breaks have the obvious benefit of literally giving the fans and the musicians a break. You just worked up a sweat for the last hour slash hour and a half. If you were fully immersed, it may have felt lifetimes longer than what your watch says. You deserve a chance to catch your breath, mentally and physically. For many fans, however, the reset doesn't quite work like that because whatever they did to enhance their experience doesn't stop just because the music did. That's where the term set breaks are weird came from. Let's hear from Linda Lawrence. You know, the visuals of, of Lemon Wheel during set break and the mounds and the pagoda and the lemon tree and the pond and the little water fountain. And they had a little campfire so you could hang out by that. There's what, 60,000 people at an Air Force base and they have a campfire going just in case you want to sit next to the campfire in the concert field while you're listening to fish. They did that at Clifford Ball too. And then there's a variety of other factors. <laughs> have have I been literally counting the, the moments at set break, watching the mal- walls melt, waiting for the band to come back on? And those times are definitely a little bit more exciting than others. That was Fish fan and show bunny Ashley Griffin, who is likely spending set break holding down dance space near the rail. And off to the side... But also holding space, we have Dave Calarco, also known as Mr. Minor. I had started to experiment with psychedelics, had been taking mushrooms recreationally. This show, we get there and we pull into the lot and my buddy Mike winds up meeting someone right away on the lot and scoring some LSD for the night. He turned around and asked John and I if we wanted some. And I was like, sure. He goes back to this dude for a second, turns back around, he's like, do you want one or two? One or two hits or something. And I wasn't sure what he was doing at the time, like how he was procuring this or anything. And I said, I'll take two. I'll take one for tonight. And if I like it, I'll take one in Charlotte tomorrow night. Comes back and hands me a piece of gum with two drops of liquid on it. I was like, that doesn't really seem like I can hold one for tomorrow night. <laughs> he's like, no. He's like, we could we could get other stuff for tomorrow night. Should I take one or two? And he's like, oh, he's like, take two. He's like, you're with friends. It'll be great. Went ahead, chewed the gum and had an incredibly intense, transformative, blissful, otherworldly experience at Fish for the first time in my life. Experienced music like I had never experienced it before. First time in my life that I had like actually danced in like a real full on way that like was not guarded or self-conscious. Just like really broke through a lot of stuff and you know, the show happened and, you know, the centerpiece of the second set was like a 30 plus minute, you enjoy myself.
you know, through the combination of psychedelic exploration, these guided psychedelic journeys that the band takes you on, both through the unknown and through yourself. I've learned a lot spiritually through my fish experience. The whole concept of individuality is kind of stripped away at fish, where like there's this experience that everyone is involved in and it becomes so much larger than any one person. It becomes so much larger than the band. It becomes so much larger than you or me. This one like consciousness that is existing that we are all tapping into, you know, and this music which Fish is bringing from the universe down to this experience to kind of foment this experience for everybody and for themselves even. And it, it kind of like provides a portal to this kind of like these cosmic truths of unity. Many psychonauts and other practitioners will tell you passionately and probably accurately that taking psychedelics at fish isn't on the same playing field as your typical college recreational chemistry experiment. And it's in a different category entirely than say getting wasted at the rock concert. Strictly speaking, sure, it's recreational, but some would even argue with that calling it a deeply spiritual combination that has led them to deeper revelations about their own lives. A psychedelic fish experience can be medicinal, therapeutic, life-affirming, and world-illuminating. There's an elevated awareness argument that shifts the conversation about the use of psychedelics at fish shows away from drug abuse and towards a goal of higher consciousness. But there are other avenues to fish spirituality. first notes of the man who stepped into yesterday. Can signify this spiritual path. It serves as the theme song for Fish's Gamehenge saga, a story that begins when Colonel Forbin steps through a metaphysical door. It's the call to adventure that kickstarts every hero's journey. When Fish plays the man who stepped into yesterday on stage these days, however, it typically sandwiches their musical arrangement of the sacred Jewish prayer, Avinu Malkenu. Jewish fans recognize that this song has sacred meaning in a traditional religious context, and it is commonly played during the high holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, a time when Jews around the world are supposed to take time and atone for their sins. Obvious themes of renewal and redemption encircle it. Hear our prayer. We have sinned before thee. Have compassion upon us and upon our children. Help us bring an end to pestilence, war, and famine. Cause all hate and oppression to vanish from the earth. Inscribe us for blessing in the book of life. Let the new year be a good year for us. Yeah, so the story of how Mike started playing Avinu Malkenu with Fish is that Rabbi Kushner would use the Avinu Malkenu melody for everything. The thing that Mike always remembers, and this is from an interview that he gave, is that for Havdalah service, for the end of Shabbat service on Saturday nights, Rabbi Kushner would sing a, a nigun, which are these wordless melodies. And, you know, in Kabbalah in, in, and in Hasidim, you know, in the sort of mystical tradition, they sing these wordless melodies over and over and over and over again until they sort of whip themselves into a spiritual frenzy, almost like the, the Sufi dancing, the, the whirling dervishes, that kind of idea, which also connects back to the, the spinners at the Grateful Dead concerts. That's Dr. Jake Cohen. And when we go to a fish concert and we hear Avinu Malkenu, that sort of activates a kind of Jewish identity in ourselves. In addition to his Jewish identity, Dr. Cohen also identifies as a fish head. And I am a musicologist who studies fish, among other things. And I do work on fish and fan identity. My first fish show was Worcester 97, 1129-97, which is the Runaway Jam show. We sort of identify with all the... We, we know that we're identifying with other Jews at the show and other fish fans. So we get this kind of... This layering of our outsider identities, both fish fan and Jew. And so that just sort of deepens our connection to the overall experience. 
The fish experience means freedom and community. There was an article, it's called, Why Are There So Many Jewish Deadheads? And they put forward a bunch of ideas, and some of them kind of fall back on these, like, classic tropes about Jews that are like, you know, we're a wandering tribe, you know, we're, no, we're nomadic, we're always looking for community, we are a musically literate and a musically centered religion, we find spirituality through music, you know, so a lot of these sort of core core values to, to Jews are also core values for a lot of uh, deadheads and fishheads. Fish is a scene that's based in the Northeast, and of the regions of the country where there are lots of Jews, the Northeast is basically at the top. Fish is a band that came up through college towns and college, college student fans. A higher than average percentage of Jews are college educated, higher than the national average. And if you're gonna go see multiple shows and go on tour and stay, you know, stay in a motel every now and then, or, you know, just have the, the sort of freedom and the uh, ability to go out on the road with a relatively safe feel, it helps to have some money or at the very least something to fall back on if, if, if shit goes awry. And, you know, above average number of Jews are in middle or upper middle class than the national average. So there are some sort of demographic correlations between fish fans and Jews. You know, Judaism really allows for, and especially reform and you know, not orthodox Judaism, allows for a very pluralistic and egalitarian approach to spirituality. It's sort of like it doesn't matter how you find it as long as you get there. For a lot of fans, you know, they might not find spirituality in Judaism anymore, but they find it in fish and it feels familiar because they went to Hebrew school or they grew up going to services with their parents and their families and they grew up with these traditions. Fish is also uh, full of ritual and tradition. A fish show is a very ritualistic kind of event. You know, it's, it's structured. Um, it's scripted, you know you're gonna get two sets, you know about how long they're gonna be, you know what the nature of these two sets are generally going to be. You know, there are rituals within the fish show, like, you know, calling the opener is a kind of ritual that fans engage in, you know, uh, writing down set list for, you know, I still do that, some, some of us still do that. You know, talking about the show right afterwards is a very sort of Talmudic approach where you're you know, analyzing and trying to sort of commentate on the the nature of what you just what you just heard. So I think that there are a lot of sort of parallels between the two. Fish fans assign a kind of sacredness to very routine things, right? So to the outside world, we're just going to a concert, right? We're going to see it. We're paying money to get a ticket to go see a concert. We're dancing. We're having a good time. We're having a few drinks, a few tokes, and we go home, right? But we elevate those routine events into the level of ritual. And one of the things that is characteristic of Jews is that they ritualize the routine. So they take that which is sort of mundane and elevate it to a level of ritualistic reverence in a way. And I think fish fans do that too. My name is Rabbi Jesse Dressen. My first fish show was December 1999 in Philly at the Spectrum. I mean, that means so much to me. It is an all-encompassing, full-body, immersive communal experience, and it is otherworldly, and it is ecstatic. All of those things are things that when they occur, and if you're lucky enough to enjoy them once, never mind time and time again, is, is, is a blessing. It's just incredible. Rabbi Dressen presented at the Fish Studies Conference at Oregon State University in 2019 with several Jewish colleagues, including Dr. Cohen. The panelists are now planning on publishing a book that contains some of their findings on the relationships between Judaism, 
and the fish experience. And the essay that I wrote for that book is actually on pilgrimage, ritual, and communal rejoicing from the ancient temple in Jerusalem, where the Israelites used to offer sacrifices to God, to Yemesji. There is like a whole thing we could talk about, about the way that fish culture and fish network moved through the American Jewish summer camp space in the late 90s, early 2000s, and the number of people that would like take a day off from camp and go to see fish at Camden, which a lot of my early fish shows were were in that context. I remember when I was living on the West Coast and hearing Micha Mocha, the redemption prayer to the tune of Waiting in the Velvet Sea for the first time. And I was like, okay, what's that all about? And then today, most of the people that I have reunions with when I go to fish shows are my camp friends. And the friends of mine that I go to see fish with locally who are not rabbis always play a over under game how many rabbis are we going to meet walking around the venue with jesse is usually in the area of like seven to eight depending we count rabbinic students as a half they get like a, a half my jewish summer camp was the incubator for me all my counselors were deadheads and fish heads and i was at that point right on the cusp of where there were still a lot of like deadheads who were like very anti-fish in like the early 90s really when fish was you know it's it's almost like the way goose is now you know like i'm not a fish is my religion girl i like to keep my music and my religion separate but the three-dimensional experience of ritual and community and and the, and the, even the power of pilgrimage of like driving through the night to get to a show or driving home through the night after a show because it's just better to wake up in your bed the next morning even if you don't get into it till five in the morning like i would read these stories in the talmud and in the torah and like in these ancient texts about what the experience was like when there was a temple in Jerusalem and people would make a pilgrimage and they would participate in these rituals and they would all basically party together. And I also remember the exact moment. It was at the first fish in Mexico, first night, first fish in Mexico. And I was standing with a friend of mine who is at the intersection of the two worlds in the most ripe way that I could imagine. And I just brought her into my mind. And I was like, have you ever thought about the fact that Chris Caruda's lighting stand is exactly where the eternal flame burned? Like the, the, the physical layout of a show even mimics the map of the ritual structure and setup and choreography of what happened in that temple. And she was like, you've got something there. And, and the rest is history. Now I like present on panels and think about the intersection of fish and Judaism in a way I never really thought I would take seriously. I think the word that comes to mind is transcendence. All religion, Judaism's just the one that I know intimately, is like a platform to try and connect that which is tangible and that which is like corporal to some to that which is transcendent, unexplainable, divine, if you will, like beyond. And music really does a lot of that. It like serves a similar purpose as a platform. And there are some ways in which I think music even more so. Like when I think about the ability to speak in languages, different languages that talk to each other, whether it's the language of a bass or the language of a a piano and like in conversation, then they accomplish something in concert with one another that is otherworldly, that is transcendent, that is beyond. And then there is this notion of trying to like grasp that which is ungraspable and we use community and we use ritual and we use stories and we use memories to to work through that. And those are very present in both Judaism and in the fish experience. And because maybe there is something about the cellular network that was the American Jewish summer camp, you know, community in which a lot of 
the fish experience spread, it also like would be that you like, I see my people here. And if you create a Venn diagram for like Jews who went to summer camp in the late 90s and early 2000s, like their Venn diagram base in the middle was fish and Jewish summer camp and like all these people that I can count on seeing at fish. Well, this has been an unexpected separate conversation. But talking of unexpected turns, which by the way, at a fish show is the one thing you can expect. Let's let Rabbi Dressen bring the conversation full circle, or rather, full donut. I believe at this moment, my husband is at about 167 shows. And I'm pretty sure it was 150-something show, July 30th of The Baker's Dozen, when he heard his first Colonel Forbins ever. And he had not only never heard it, but he was convinced at this point that he would never hear it. And then he got it on his birthday. And that was also the night that we learned that Fish also understands the transcendence of the universe because the universe is actually a donut. Rabbis would actually support the possibility of what psychedelic exploration can do for the spiritual journey. Because there is, again, this chaos within structure and this reality that like in this world that we live in, we create these structures and systems that we live within in order to be productive, in order to be functioning, in order to understand the mores and folk ways of how to be alongside others. But the experience of the divine is not limited to that. And if we only tried to understand the divine and like the grand beyond within those structures, we'd never even begin to get into it. So the possibility that one could alter their state of thinking in order to take themselves out of those daily limitations in which we become accustomed to and therefore kind of go on routine and autopilot to go through. That that experience of ecstasy and awe is something that like, if you can figure out how to engage with it is invited. What you should know though, is that the rabbis also believe that there are kind of like shallower and like purer ways to do that. So they would not, they would be very cautious in saying that anything that like was kind of substance induced in order to get there might be valuable in its function, but would ultimately be distracting or debilitating if in its dependency. Well, now that we spend half of set break going down rabbit holes with our neighbors, something that we might not actually do as often as we should, I'm going to get up and excuse myself so I can do all the things and get back to my section before second set. Want me to bring you back a beer? Oh, how very 2.0 of me. These days, more and more fans are choosing sobriety, either at shows or in life at large, and many have found that they can still get the full transcendent experience that is live fish and go home high without the use of chemical enhancement. In fact, in some ways, and for some people, fish itself might be the ultimate drug. One with enormous potential for addiction, sure, but also one with lots of medicinal value. There's not one doctor in the world that would say fish is bad for you, apart from the mercury content, perhaps. Lots to think about. We'll be right back. Okay, um, in all reality, we're really just getting warmed up. Oh good, I made it back in time. Looks like the band is still in their dressing rooms, but while we spent much of set break talking about life, the universe, and everything, many of our fellow friends in the fish community had other adventures. Some went halfway around the arena to catch up with old friends. Others sat in their seats. Still others made it a point to stop by the waterwheel booth to give back to the local community. To those that did that, we salute you. No matter how much a scene shares a common experience, anytime you give 20,000 individuals half an hour of free time, you're going to get 20,000 different adventures. Approach the night wind. 
is caution, it's the best that you can do. Move quickly through the darkness, still the daylight is renewed. Approach the night with caution, you will know it's for the best. Once tomorrow's morning quells the pumping in your chest. So what's beautiful about staying present is how recovery has taught me to stay present, no matter what life throws at me. Vic Vila is a three-time Edward R. Murrow award-winning journalist at Colorado Public Radio. He's also the host of Back From Broken, a podcast about addiction and recovery. So if I'm at a fish show and I'm enjoying some jam and all of a sudden I turn uh, to the left and I see some guy next to me doing a bunch of blow that was unexpected and I didn't see that five minutes ago, I know what to do now. And, and I think that's the, the thing I try and get across to, to other fish fans who are also in recovery, especially if they're new in recovery, is, hey, the world, God is not going to put out this neat and perfect path for you. Sometimes there's going to be things that catch you by surprise. It's going to be what you do with that and who you're with and, and where your recovery program is at. Breaking that glass in case of emergency if need be and going and making a phone call or going to the fellowship table. Wait, the fellowship table? And what that means is that we have a table that's set up from the moment doors open until middle of the second set. You know, even at the end of the show, people kind of know where to go back to the where table is set up. In 1995, Paige Clem, whom you just heard, co-founded The Fellowship, a nonprofit organization that creates a meetup space inside every fish show, offering support, encouragement, and a social element for sober fans whether they are struggling with addiction or celebrating their sobriety and individual journeys. So if it gets weird, somebody blows a big puff of something in your face, you get triggered, you're fighting with your girlfriend, like whatever's going on, if you just start to kind of get like, ah, at the show, you can, you can go back to the table and just sit down and talk or whatever you need. And then at the set break, there is a meeting that, that you know, it's just again about community. It's based very, very loosely on a typical 12-step meeting but it's not a 12-step meeting. It's a just where everybody comes together, try to find a place where you can actually hear each other, and sharing just starts. And somebody might just start with the topic, like, I'm so-and-so, I'm a fellow, and I was noticing tonight that I'm feeling super grateful that the pandemic's over and we're all at a big, awesome fish show, and I missed you guys. But the idea is just that there's somebody there that you know that you can find that you can talk to or hang with or vent with whatever you might need. It's not therapists, it's not licensed people, it's just a, a, a peer that you can relate to that is also clean and sober so that you know you can find somebody that's there. Many fish fans have entertaining stories about this one time on fish tour, often involving chemical enhancements to the shiny music that descends from overhead. But three decades and four eras into the fish experience, many fish fans also now have sobering stories about their sobriety. We hear more and more of these every year as our scene continues to age well and evolve. There's a lot of people raising their hands. Okay, let's call on Drew Hitz, Paige Clem, Ross Miller, and Roger Patterson, in that order. Well, for one big thing, I'm sober now. I've been sober for the last 11 and a half years. So starting 2010, you know, that first show that I saw in Hershey, I've been in sobriety, which is like a fundamental change. Not that like every single show before then was uh, like, let's get it on. But, uh, but there were a lot of them that were, like a lot of them that were. So that's massively different. Amazing, like I'm, I'm sober too, and I didn't know this happened. The single biggest difference in how I experience fish now, as opposed to 10 years ago or, or longer, is the fact that I'm sober. I'm coming up on five years sober from drugs and alcohol. And going to fish to see fish, experience the, the music is a constant. That's always been the same. And the priorities that come with that are, are very different. I used to spend time before going to fish trying to find, you know, the the drug of choice that would make the experience what I wanted it to be or scrambling in the lot to find what I wanted. These days I don't I really don't need any kind of substance to experience to experience the music. A big part of it like I said is 
being with the right people at a show? Okay, so since first seeing Fish, the two biggest things that have probably changed the most is, is one being I'm, I'm clean and sober now. That's that's the number one. You know, from my own experience, you know, I had whatever addiction histories in my family and my own kind of bumpy adolescence and, and my reasons for quitting when I was still a teenager. But I love this music and I love the scene and and being able to like go and be in a real, you know, pretty heavy party crowd can be weird, particularly when you're young and, you know, if, if that was kind of your jam and now it's not, it's like, oh, what am I doing here? And am I comfortable? And should I be here at all? And... Trey has said in the past that what goes on backstage is often a reflection of what's going on in the audience or vice versa. Trey was sober and they needed to keep backstage sober and they needed to keep people down to a minimum. And, uh, you know, people that you had seen backstage for 10 years were no longer around, whether they were bad influences or good influences. They felt like they needed to sort of turn it all over, turn a new leaf over and bring in new blood. That was Jay Blakesburg's perspective. Once Trey got sober and began to publicly talk about and celebrate it, it's really no wonder that many fans found themselves there as well. Remember fan artist Brandy Davis? The band is definitely inspired by psychedelics, and even if you don't use the psychedelic, the music is very psychedelic, and the light show and everything. There's sort of like a, a spiritual, almost religious experience in that that connects a lot of us. I think that's part of what ties the music and the fans together, is that sort of outer space, powerful stuff. And the sobriety of Trey is really, really wonderful. I thought the band was done, and now they're back, and it's really on that point. Let's call on Undermine producer Brian Brinkman for his experience. Brian decided to take a break from alcohol and cannabis toward the end of 2020, right as Trey's Beacon Jam's run ended, and concurrently, political and pandemic tensions in the country were at an all-time high. My wife and I were expecting our second child in January, and I kind of got the realization that by numbing myself, I was removing any sort of present nature to my family, to my job, to my passions, to my health. And I didn't want to do that anymore. So I didn't overtly make a decision to quit anything. I just decided to take a break and see how I felt and see where I went from there. Our cannabis partners will be happy to hear that Brian did eventually bring back the weed while still staying away from alcohol and anything else. In our scene, is that considered PT sober? This kind of all leads up to my first fish shows in two years, which were at Dick's Sporting Goods Park in late summer 2021. And going into the shows, I was pretty nervous. I was confident that I'd be able to go through the shows with the way that I had been going through life for the previous nine months. But it was also really the first experience I was going to have where I was around you know, excessive partying, excessive drinking, casual drinking through the day. And, you know, in typical situations in the past, I would love to have a beer with friends. I'd love to have a beer, you know, in the parking lot, have a beer after the show, kind of when we're sitting on our back patio, rehashing what happened at the show. And so there was a part of me that was like, is this going to negatively impact me? And I found the experience of the dick shows to only reinforce that I was making the right decision and only reinforced for me that I don't expect nor desire no, nor anticipate drinking ever again. Experiencing fish with a clear-headed mindset allowed me to really tap into intentionality on stage, um, allowed me to really have a clear understanding of what was happening through the show. There was no kind of blur. There was no, you know, kind of haze of, oh man, where are we at in the show? And for me, it, it helped me to tap into what I need to really get as much out of the fish experience as I hope to and as I, as I seek to. So it was a huge, huge win for me. Let's go back to Paige, Paige Clem, that is, to hear more about the origins of the fellowship. 
And I went on the fishnet and I put up a post and said, you know, we're frat slash, you know, yellow balloon, you know, sober people, friends of Bill, which is another recovery slang, and just trying to find a couple of people. We formed a little bitty, teeny, tiny group of people that were sober that wanted to meet up and kind of start this thing. And so we started talking about it from a grassroots standpoint. And somewhere in there, I contacted the band and wrote a letter. And I still have this postcard that came back from Betty Frost. I think it was 95. And it said, you know, though we, uh, you know, appreciate and support the concept, we're not at a place right now to do something like that, but we recommend you use the fishnet or whatever. As soon as Jerry died, that October 95 tour got weird. It just like the vibe changed. There was a lot more people there. There was a lot of like some weirder stuff going on and just the vibe got weirder. So um, I guess it was really the beginning of 3.0. When things really came back, it started to just like exponentially multiply because of social media. That's when we got a Facebook group and people would start to get led there more. Other fish networks had the ability to refer, you know, so people would be on Addicted to Fish or somewhere and, and they knew to where to send us because they'd, we'd been around enough. The reason that I think that the fellowship, you know, was, was able to come on and was able, you know, to stay and to grow. And then ultimately I feel like really just sort of get integrated into the larger community as like a very accepted aspect of things is because we're exceptionally passive. There is no, we have no end game. We're not there to convert people or tell you about what we do. There's no message. There's a, we exist solely for the purpose of having a place for clean and sober people to find other clean and sober people at a show, period. And it's a slippery environment um, because there are substances around and it allows an opportunity to make it less slippery. It really doesn't do anything more than that. And the beauty of it is by having it be that simple, a lot of amazing things have happened. You know what? We have a few more people we want to chat with before set break is over. Can you hold my spot? I'll be right back after this last quick break. Now, I grew up in a huge family of music fans. My dad was a big fan of oldies rock and roll. So like Chuck Berry and the Coasters and Little Richard and those guys. So I grew up with all those sounds whenever my dad would have friends over or whatever. Um, my mom loved her Mexican music, her singing old Spanish corridos. My uncles played New Mexican uh, slash mariachi sort of style of, of music, you know, when I was growing up. And she also was a fan of, of country music. So, you know, when she was cooking, we would often hear Patsy Cline in the kitchen or, or Loretta Lynn. I love, uh, especially after Trey got sober, which they told more meaningful, you know, lyrics about, you know, the things that they're all going through, like aging and like love and, and tenderness and things like that. That's Vic Vila again, who just got back from Broken. You know, there were about 15 of us all in this section, and it was just, we were just in this little cocoon away, you know, while thousands of other people are getting high and drunk around us, we were just in our own little cocoon enjoying three nights of fish. So by the time the the end of, of night three rolled around, I was feeling really good. Then the set two closer for night three was uh, Slave. And for whatever reason, I 
you know, when, when Trey got to the point, the, the instrumental part of the song, before the crescendo, the explosive finish that he always puts on, I just didn't think about it. I just closed my eyes. I just stood with my face toward the stage at Trey and just closed my eyes and took everything in. I had not done that all weekend. And when I did, like I could feel the lights penetrate, the lights from the stage, the lights from the arena penetrate off my face. I could feel the air that was blowing, the breeze that was blowing on my face, the, the, the light from the stars and the moon. And I could feel Trey's guitar in my heart and in my soul. And then I started thinking about how he had also overcome the things that he had overcome. How Trey, thank God, we almost lost him. If he had continued to go down the road he was going before he got help. I don't know if, if there would be fish right now. And then I thought about how he was such an instrumental person in motivating me to stay sober. How I would go on YouTube, you know, if I was having a rough day early in my recovery and maybe I didn't think I was gonna make it, he was one of the people I would search for on YouTube and listen to his, his speeches at drug court and how that motivated me to stay on the path I was on. And I thought about how all those times that I had seen fish before, how fucked up I was and how many times I could not go to a show unless I had like a pharmacist's coat full of drugs. That was the only way I could leave the house. And so here I am sober, surrounded by people that I love. And, and then all of a sudden his guitar is picking up and we're reaching the, the climax of, of Slave and I just had tears, again, eyes closed, tears streaming down my face. Fish concerts are a celebration. They are our party, and with parties comes partying. But we're now in an era where the party host, Trey Anastasio, is vocal about his own sobriety. And whereas backstage used to have an open bar, these days it's a sober environment. And, as we just heard, an increasing number of fans are also discovering, by personal experiment or by their own necessity, that they can still rage a fish show sober. Let's check in with longtime fan and nonprofit director Mike Ferguson. I'm exactly who I am in that moment, in for that show, have that experience with a whole bunch of people. We can talk about it or never talk about it again. And it's still a shared kind of miraculous experience. And then, you know, in 2003, I went to, I went to rehab and Trey went to rehab and then we both showed up on fish tour in 2009 sober. And it was, uh, that was a completely different experience. I was terrified to go to my first show. I was, I skipped the 04 Alpine shows. Cause I was like, I could probably go and be fine but I feel scared about going, you know? And that, that was a clarifying moment of like, is this really about the music or is it about going to a show to just like hang out and do drugs in an open air drug market? And the amazing part about Fish is it's like, oh, it's absolutely not that. It's not that at all. Like it's, for me, I've had much better experiences at Fish being there sober and being there present. I wouldn't trade that experience, you know? I think that, especially as I've gotten older, like being able to remember the shows and like do a run for four or five days and not feel like, oh, I need to like go shut down for like a month. <laughs> There's a reason why I started seeing them in 1998 and I still see them now, you know, and even though my life is totally different. Fish has evolved significantly and so have I and it's uh, they're still there showing up and being present and putting on this art for us and that's pretty cool. You know, when you go into the little fish enclave, you get your mini utopia for a little while, you know, of like, okay, we're going to hang out. Everybody's going to be nice to each other most of the time. There may be some nudging in, on the floor, you know, but otherwise we're pretty good. And then Fish is going to play this cool show and we're all going to be there. And then we'll go back to our lives, you know, and, and move on. I think doing longer tours definitely feels, even sober feels like 
oh no, I'm bailing on reality. Like that is for sure the choice of like, I'm going on fish tour. And you know, that's, it's, it's certainly a more of a mental vacation, but that's, you know, that's an active choice to, to go with that mindset. In hindsight, the band's two year hiatus and then five year breakup were just very long set breaks. The band came back and found Paige still wrapping up Lawn Boy. At set break, everyone's a critic. Let's hear once again from actual critic Stephen Hyden, followed by his colleagues Rob Mitchum and Pitchfork associate editor Sam Sadomsky, respectively. We sat down with them in episode two of this season to discuss the nature of criticizing something you love. You know, they they go into that hiatus in 2004, and then Trey has his issues. And if you look at rock history, you would think that in most cases, the guy in the band that has those issues ends up dying, and then it's over. And Trey, you know, happily that didn't happen to him. And they were able to step back from the abyss and come back and have this great renaissance over the last 12 years now. That that to me is like totally beautiful. Even when you are down and out, you can come back, you can put your life back together, you can put your friendship back together. And I find that to be just so inspirational. No matter what band it is, you know, you go see, you know, James Taylor and there's people probably huffing in the parking lot, you know? I mean, it's just the way it is. It's a party. People want to have fun. So I I don't think that's specific to uh, Fish by any means. They can be the most fun band, party band. It's it's Friday night. Let's have some beers, smoke some joints and rock out. Or they can be this band that like just totally stimulates your brain because they're taking you to different places sonically that you've never been before. The other thing I've, I've learned from this is it's really easy to look back on fish history and chop it into eras. So you say like, all right, some, you know, 95 is like a big arena rock fish. 97 is when they get into funk. 98, 99, they get into space, etc. But it's really fun to hear the seeds of those eras appear, you know, sometimes years in advance. So like, you know, the funk thing in 97, they went for it in 97, but I mean, you can hear it, germs of it in 93. (laughs) Like, it's not like it came from nowhere. Or like, you know, some of the really out there jams of 94, fall 94 or summer 95 sort of foreshadow what's going to happen in 98, 99 when they start to get into more ambient textural territory. It's kind of like finding the connective tissue between the big milestone shows, you also hear that these steps in their musical evolution, they didn't just happen overnight. They were things that had been planted long ago. It was definitely like a Jewish summer camp thing for me. And it was very much my very first summer there. I was pretty much totally a classic rock kid at the time. And it was maybe like 99 or 2000. And Fish was pretty much what all of the cool older kids listened to there. So I really quickly wanted to be ingratiated with them and to familiarize myself. Yeah, just like their imagery I thought was really cool. And they all had the t-shirts and the logos and stuff. And at the time, the newest Fish studio album was Farmhouse, which I feel like is a great introduction to them for like a classic rock-minded young person. The title track I pretty much instantly liked. sounded like like the band. And then I feel like First Tube was a really inviting kind of like jammy fish song. So yeah, I was like pretty much, I heard that and I was like, oh cool, like this is the next, you know, level of listening to music. Okay, so we just spent the time in between sets talking about the things you're not supposed to talk about to strangers at a party. Religion, psychedelics, sobriety. You guys know that set breaks don't have to be political or divisive, right? Sometimes set breaks are just set breaks. Let's talk to Shawnee Robinson again, who we spoke with in previous episodes. So my experience seeing fish has changed in that from 2010 to about 2015, I did most of my shows solo and felt like more of an observer. You know, I didn't really have like a set crew. I didn't have like all of like the connections and like ties to little drama stuff that happens now. Now I feel more like a, a participant than an observer. And like one of my favorite things at fish shows actually is to listen to like the set break chatter, like everyone's conversations that are happening around me. I'll just be sitting there like, you know, maybe scrolling through my phone or something like that. But also like listening to like the conversations which range from like weird to heartfelt to hilarious. 
that's just those, that's like one of my favorite experiences at fish show miss robinson is if you recall not your stereotypical fish fan she's young she's black and she brought her mom with her to a show definitely the most beautiful thing that's happened to me at a set break having my mom turned to me at her first and only show, which was August 16th, 2015, at MPP, and saying, okay, Shawnee, I get it. It's almost like the tone of Trey's guitar is like, a, like some fine silk thread that weaves through my life. And so it's not like it's always there, but when I go to a fish show or go back, like you're living life, things are changing, married, kid, like all this stuff. And then you find yourself back at a fish show and there's that sound again. It's like, it hasn't changed. And I mean, it's evolved, but it's like, it's that familiarity and it's a sense of kind of coming home. Okay, set break is almost over, and all these conversations are still going on, but they will all stop at the same time just as soon as the PA music cuts and the lights go back down. Fan Ross Miller is still in line at concessions getting some candy. Let's eavesdrop. What do I eat (laughs) during a show? That also somehow correlates to age and substances. You know, in my 20s, I would drink my meal, you know, before a show. So you're mostly looking at beer, right? Sometimes you might grill something cheap, like a brat that you burnt on your stove because you still don't know what you're doing and don't know how to cook. And then, you, right, you would look forward right when you finish the show and you're coming down a little bit, you're a little hazy and you're coming out of the arena and you hear the, uh, the tanks hissing. But really what you're looking for is that heady grilled cheese. These days it's, it's very different. We're having fancy meats and cheeses you know, in vegetable platters in the lot before the show. I'll probably sneak a bag of M&Ms at intermission, maybe a, maybe a salty pretzel if I'm, if I'm getting funky. One day, me, my mom, and my brother went to a Trey Band concert, and before we left, I decided I wanted to write a letter to Trey and hope that he would get it. And this is what it said. Dear Trey, hi, my name is Daphne. I'm in seventh grade and I go to Marshwood Middle School. I have listened to your music since I was a baby. My mom, Dawn Jenkins, helped me figure out your music. I have been to three of your concerts and loved every single one of them. You have taught me that I can do anything I can do and I'm a musician too, I sing. Anyway, it's something I think you said, here it is. It's easier for me to express myself on a musical level than in the English language. That is all I have to say. Thank you for your music. Love, Daphne. P.S. It would be very cool to meet you. So first set ends and me and my mom start yelling, Trey, Trey, and he saw us and he told the security guard and pointed at us. So I gave the letter to the security guard and he gave it to Trey. I was super happy that he took it. When he went to the bathroom, we got food and when we got back, the security guard gave us a letter and it was from Trey and it said, Dear Daphne, the kind words in your letter made my day. Keep singing and I do believe you can do anything. Thank you so much for your letter. With love and light, Trey. I thought this was super amazing and I am so happy it happened that when I turn 18, I'm going to be getting a tattoo in his handwriting with love and light. wow, just like that, Fish is back for set two. No matter how long you've been waiting for that moment, it always seems to come as a surprise. We've got our own second set coming up next Wednesday as we go inside the second frame of a Fish show. Thanks for spending set break with us, and now we'll shut up and dance. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media, the leading music storyteller. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Written by Benji Eisen. Produced and edited by Brian Brinkman. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. 
produced by David Goldstein, Jonathan Hart, Brad Tenbrook, and Don Jenkins. Production assistance and writing by Noah Eckstein and Julia Schuster. Social media by Nick Sejas. Original music by Amar Sastry. Show art by Mark Dowd. Thank you to all our interviewees. We'll see you next week. Special thanks to Mark Brownstein of the Disco Biscuits for lending a hand and reciting Avinu Malkenu for us. This season of Undermine is all about the fish community, and since that's you, go ahead, get online and judge us. Please rate and review us on your podcaster, if it's favorable, that is. Oh, and your tour buddies would love a link to this episode, so don't let them down, and while you're at it, they want your extra mail orders too. Next week on Undermine, we'll work our way through a second set workout, which means deep dives, type 2 talks, maybe a vocal jam, so to speak, and, in so many words, something like this. The mystical understanding is that there was a time when the world was created and it was perfect and whole. And in order for humanity to exist and in order for people to have their own ability to make choices about how they wanted to live in the world, that this vessel that was whole and perfect, there was a retraction to to like make space for humans and it shattered into a million vessels and every one of us has a piece of that like light that like bursted out of the vessel and every one of us is trying to find how to connect our light with one another and all of a sudden like you're swimming in a pool of your friends and you look around and maybe everybody has green lights on them because you're actually at a fish show right like you feel that moment of like and like all of the individual pieces of light and we're all shining together and we're all together swimming in a sea and love to take a bath right like that's the mystical understanding and i could play with that and i feel like you already get a sense how i would play with that Hey music fans, we wanted to let you know about Music on the Mountain, a show that will feature Anders Osborne, Dogs in a Pile, and Saints and Liars. This show will be directly after the Divided Sky Foundation's fun run at 2 p.m. on Saturday, May 18th at the base of Akimo Mountain in Ludlow, Vermont. The show is presented by The Phoenix, a national nonprofit organization offering support to those in recovery and anyone impacted by substance use to celebrate recovery. If you're running in the Divided Sky Foundation's fund run, you'll be automatically registered for the show. It's a family-friendly event, and all proceeds from ticket sales and other donations benefit the Divided Sky Foundation. Visit Music on the Mountain, that's musiconthemtn.com, for more info and to get tickets. That's musiconthemtn.com. Hope you enjoy. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast.